we also know that alcohol actually, although it might make you feel better to begin with, gives you a little bit of a buzz, we know that it's a depressant. So what I began to realise when I started to have thoughts of suicide was that it probably wasn't doing me any good because it was adding to what was already a really bad state. Um, And I got to the point where I intended to end my life. I'd got a plan about what I was going to do, how I was going to do it, where I was going to do it, when I was going to do it. And completely by chance had a conversation with somebody that stopped me in my tracks. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last five years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. So here's a lady from one of our WhatsApp groups. Good morning, everyone. Hope everyone's okay. I am reading the messages while in Cape Town traffic with this rainy weather, and I thought I'd just say hi. I've done day one so many times. I made the 90 days, didn't even get to 100, but you know what, it is, it's true what they're saying, that beating beating yourself up about it doesn't make it easier, it makes it worse. So you know what? we've all got this it's it's tough but we are with each other and yeah you know nothing good comes easy and I'm looking forward to the day that I can turn around and say you know I did it I'm looking forward to beautiful skin I'm looking forward for forward to um nights like, like long sleeps at night I'm looking forward to energy I'm looking forward to like increased brain power and I'm looking forward to a great life with my daughter and seeing her grow up And that's what I need to keep telling myself. I hope you guys are wonderful. Happy Friday. So if you want to join our community, just go to tribesober.com and check us out. Now, last week we heard from Liam about how alcohol brought him so low that he was actually considering suicide. That's on episode 62 if you missed it. My guest this week was also in that dark place for a while. But thankfully, she recovered and is now doing some very worthwhile work. Andrea Newton is a corporate consultant, keynote speaker, mental health advocate, and a podcast host. She was also a colleague of mine back in the 1990s. So it was lovely to catch up with her after all these years. I began by asking Andrea to introduce herself. 
I'm based in the UK. I'm in the northwest near Manchester. And for the last 26 years, would you believe, Janet, um, I've worked in the corporate world originally in a training role, um, moved a bit further into HR as, as a bit of a generalist support for our depots in the north. Um, and 21 years ago, I went freelance to basically focus on one particular area that was around having conversations that matter, uh, whether those conversations in the workplace are to do with performance or attendance or at the other end of the spectrum, sensitive subjects such as mental health, even suicide ideation. And so I help organisations to have seven significant conversations so that people feel supported, heard, engaged and can deliver in terms of what the organisation needs. That's brilliant. I love the specific nature of it, you know, these seven conversations. We'll talk about those more mm. as we go. Let's uh, let's talk about alcohol a little bit. Uh, mm. Tell us about your relationship with alcohol and, <laughs> and what you think about alcohol and mental health. Is there a connection? Um, I've had a very on-off relationship with alcohol, I have to say. Um, I think when I was at university, I was pretty much the same as everybody else. You know, 20 pence for a shot of gin in the student union and fill your boots. Um, and then sort of later, probably in my mid-20s, I actually stopped drinking completely because I hated seeing what it did to people. Um, I felt really uncomfortable where people clearly had had too much to drink. And I just thought, you know what, I don't ever want to be like that. And it was funny when I was thinking about this the other day, some people that I worked with at the time who were based in London and you know them all, Janet. Um, I actually went to a party with them and I wasn't drinking and they were. And I remember them talking about me being really miserable. And I remember thinking, yeah, but look at the state of you. And my husband, my ex-husband, had a bit of a drink problem. And whenever he drank, um, he could get aggressive and violent. So it served me to not drink so that I was always, you know, kind of on my toes, as it were. And so for a long time, I didn't drink at all because of, as I say, the impact I saw it had for other people. Um, and then I went through a really difficult time um, actually going through the divorce from the psychotic ex-husband and uh, the wheels fell off. I had to go to court. I had to get an injunction, a non-molestation order. Um, I was diagnosed with depression, with anxiety, with PTSD. And drink became my very best friend because it was there for me at night when nobody else was around to um, help me feel better. And so I slid very easily into um, washing down my medication <laughs> with um, a few glasses of wine. And you know as well as I do that after a time to achieve the same effect, you have to drink more. And we also know that alcohol actually, although it might make you feel better to begin with, gives you a little bit of a buzz, we know that it's a depressant. So what I began to realise when I started to have thoughts of suicide was that it probably wasn't doing me any good because it was adding to 
what was already a really bad state. Um, and I got to the point where I intended to end my life. I'd got a plan about what I was going to do, how I was going to do it, where I was going to do it, when I was going to do it. And completely by chance had a conversation with somebody that stopped me in my tracks. And one of the first things I realized was that I had to stop drinking, A, because of the effect it was having on me, but B, because alcohol also lowers inhibitions. So all the time I'm having thoughts of suicide, being in a state where my inhibitions are lowered, I mean, we call it Dutch courage, don't we? Um, you know, being in, in a position where it made me feel brave and the risk was I would make bad choices. Um, drink was the first thing that had to go just to prove to myself that I could stop. And so yeah, yeah. It, I've, I've kind of gone full circle, really. Um, I'm now in a position where I will occasionally have a drink. I like a drink. And I think because my mental health is a damn sight better, because I'm much more resilient, it's now something that I can enjoy when I want to, rather than needing it every night to numb the pain. Yeah, well, well done you for, for managing to get to that state where many of us uh, problem drinkers dream of, you know, to be able to have the odd glass now and again, and really for being so aware. And that was quite chilling what you said about the uh, feeling suicidal and then, you know, alcohol giving you Dutch courage, because I'm sure many people do commit suicide under the influence because yeah. they, they just well, lost the plot of what they're doing. Yeah, actually, we know that the risk of suicide is eight times higher if alcohol misuse is, is present. So it absolutely wow. does have a bearing. And here in the UK, about 10% of suicides every year tend to be um, related to alcohol misuse. Um, so we wow. know it absolutely does um, make a difference. When you said um, that you, you tried to stop because um, you didn't like what it was doing to people and you were witnessing mm. all this. It, it just made me smile a bit because that's the experience of so many of us in early sobriety. Mm. And we're always worried about stopping because we think, oh, I'll lose all my friends, I'll be boring, etc. And needless to say, just like you experience, people do say, oh, you're a bit, you know, dull mm. this evening. Mm. So it's amazing, you know, and you really have to get soldier on through that because your real friends will stick around it's only your your drinking buddies that will tease you relentlessly mm -hmm. and yeah I say to people now if you know when you have to get have to go out and you want to go out then uh, imagine you're an anthropologist you know and just watch these people because mm -hmm. you get you start to understand, you know, really it's about two or three drinks down and the voices start changing and the, the stories get repeated. And yeah. when people say that sober people are boring, it, it makes me smile now because it's the drunk ones that are completely boring, <laughs> isn't it? Being alcohol-free in, in an yeah. alcohol-drenched society, isn't it? It is. And, you know, whenever you say, no, no, I don't want to drink, thank you, people always sort of, are you sure? As though there's something wrong with you yeah. if you don't want to drink. But I, I just knew what it was doing to me. And it also put me in a situation where I was at risk. Um, because if he'd had a drink and I had two, then, you know, heaven knows where, where that could go. So mm -hmm. I always wanted to be one step ahead. And I figured, therefore, not drinking. Yeah. Um, in that situation was, was really the right thing for me, however boring that might have made me. 
You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. A very sensible move, I would say. So yeah, as you said, Andrea, so many of us start drinking to ease our anxiety. Yet uh, there's a, a meme that I love, and it says drinking alcohol is like pouring gasoline on your anxiety, and it yeah. just makes it so much worse. And as you say, with washing your meds down, you know, it's mm-hmm. quite enough. Come across a lot of people that are on antidepressants, for example, and drinking, yeah. and they wonder why they're still depressed. Well, you know, yeah. a the uh, the alcohol is cancelling out any benefits of the meds, and b alcohol is a depressant as well. Mm. So we we really need to to know this stuff. And I, I've coached people because um, I do individual recovery coaching. And I've coached a lot of people that have been in therapy for a long time because their anxiety has been so bad. And then I've managed to get them to stop drinking. And after three or four months, they say, you know, I'm beginning to feel so much lighter. Mm. Yet the therapist never mentioned alcohol. And and the person was too embarrassed to bring up Mm. the fact that she was downing a bottle of wine every night. So it's it's like the elephant in the room, isn't it? Mm. For sure. For sure. And it's all those conversations that we are uncomfortable to have with people. And so because we don't talk directly about it, as you say, we just kind of turn a blind eye and perhaps often don't realise that well-being isn't just, you know, your your fruit and veg and your five a day and all of that. There's there's lots of different things. And, you know, we know that alcohol affects several of the, the nerve chemical systems in our brain. So why are we surprised when we learn that it isn't good in terms of mental health? You know, we know it has a physical impact on the brain health. Um, So why don't we kind of put two and two together? Well, I I think drink serves a number of purposes in that respect, because realising that you are depressed or that you have got a mental health disorder, the, the shame and the stigma that sometimes goes with that, alcohol helps to numb that. And, you know, for a time, yeah. perhaps we, we don't feel quite so bad about ourselves. As I know myself, the more you then drink, the worse the depression, the anxiety becomes. And uh, it just then yeah. becomes a vicious circle. Yeah. And we have to find healthier ways to um, to get through that feeling. But, uh, yeah, thinking about your work now and all those years that I spent in uh, in human resources, I can't actually recall, you know, a single conversation that I had with anybody about their drinking. And maybe it was because I was drinking too much as well. <laughs> but it's interesting because all those places I worked at, I mean, everybody used to drink their heads off and mm-hmm. it was a real work hard, play hard thing going on mostly. Mm-hmm. So there, there must have been problematic drinkers there. But I don't remember any manager ever coming to me and saying, oh, this one's coming in with hangovers every day. They're not effective. Yeah. It's yeah. That's definitely an elephant in the room again, mm-hmm. I think, in organisations. Oh, Janet, I, I remember back in the day um, – because obviously my my background, as you're very well aware, is in transport and logistics. And I remember one of the um, the warehouses that we worked with, the guys who drove the forklift trucks actually had, um, you know, the reels of brown tape that they used to, to tie up parcels. They had a reel 
strapped to the front of their forklift truck because it was just big enough to put a beer can in on a Friday afternoon when they were loading trucks. And as I sit here today, that is a true story. The manager of that depot had a fridge in his office and Friday afternoon, the alcohol would come out of the fridge. Think about things that that we did socially with the business. You know, once a year, the company that I work for, once a year, they'd take us to France for a sports weekend. How many people (laughs) that weekend would be standing on a table waving a napkin over their head, um, you know, and and singing songs in a foreign language? It, It was just so part of the whole work environment that nobody would question it. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, if you didn't participate, you were you were the boring one. Absolutely, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. everywhere I've worked, as you know, I mean, I certainly remember that waving around, <laughs> standing on chairs. Uh, I don't think I did it, but I remember watching, and I was probably too wasted to stand on a chair in the first place but I definitely remember it (laughs) but uh and then I went on to to work in the art world which is also notorious and and we had you know if you didn't go out for the Friday night drinks then you know you you just didn't fit really so I think people are under a lot of pressure and I, I read a very interesting book recently I don't know if you've seen it I think you'd like it it's called Quiet by Susan Cain and she's American. She's done a TED Talk on the subject. And it's about introverts and extroverts. Okay. And apparently the world is split, you know, more or less into 50-50 introverts, extroverts. But if you're an introvert, which I am, um, you tend to, you feel often under a lot of pressure to perform in corporates. You know, you've got your presentations, you're socializing, all this. And then, of course, one's social life also. And a lot of introverts do come to rely on alcohol as a coping mechanism. Yeah. So I thought yeah. that was really interesting. And and if you are an introvert and you feel like you have to drink to cope, I'd really recommend this book because she mm-hmm. she talks about the power of being an introvert and all the good qualities of an introvert. So it's very um it's a real boost to your morale if, mm. if you do feel a bit introverted and especially yeah. in early sobriety because we mm. we just tend to want to hide sometimes so that's that's a great book so let's talk a little bit more about your work because i think mm. it's so interesting these seven conversations I talk about challenging conversations and that challenge could be you need to give your boss some feedback. It might be that you don't like the way that a colleague is behaving. It might be the Christmas party where you get cornered by somebody who has had too much to drink and perhaps they're more senior than you. How do you handle that? difficult conversation. All the way through to I talk a lot about mental health and well-being and I believe that for organisations to get the very best out of people we need to acknowledge that health and safety is more than hard hats and high vis. Health and safety is also about mental health, it's about psychological safety and it's about making sure that people are in a good state Again, not becoming their therapist, but being able to have conversations so that we can help people get the help they need. That's an area that I've really started to focus on. Um, Obviously, I've had my own experience of suicide ideation, and I realised that we spend such a lot of our time at work, and we don't talk about things that matter. You know, you've already highlighted that alcohol, you know, was almost part of the workplace, the social aspect of it. 
but you don't ever recall having a conversation with somebody who perhaps was drinking a little bit too much or a little bit too frequently because we don't. And so the work that I do is really about encouraging people to get comfortable with the uncomfortable and talk about stuff that matters. Yeah, I love that, Andrea. It's brilliant. Just the the fact that you're giving people a structure and a framework. So Yeah, yeah, because I loved your podcast when you were talking about, uh, I think this is such a a good example, you were talking about what managers should say to their staff when they came back after the pandemic, you know, if they've Mm -hmm. been working from home for months, and then they suddenly appear back in the office. And I'm sure, you know, in many cases, the manager would just say, oh, there you are. How are you? Fine. Mm. And then they expected to just get on with it. Yeah. And, and your points, you know, that you raised in that, that podcast were, were brilliant. And it really highlighted the need for this kind of thing, I think. I think the pandemic certainly meant that um, alcohol suddenly got a lot more fans. Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, the stats tell us that, don't they? Mm. I think. And al- even alcohol related deaths have increased dramatically okay. during 2020. Yeah. Because imagine, I mean, I know it would have happened to me if I'd still been in my, my drinking phase and I'd found myself working from home every day, all day. I'd just be having a glass of wine beside my computer you know, practically all day long Mm. because it's so easy. You don't have Mm. to have the wine in shots. You just have it at the side (laughs) and and that's it, you know. And then, then of course, in the evening, you go on with your usual bottles. So so Mm. your bottle a day becomes two bottles a day. Yeah, there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. Um, You don't have to drive anywhere in the morning. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a few too many this evening. So absolutely, I I think um, it's been a period of time where, you know, people, people have had some challenging stuff to deal with. You think of the number of people that will have been bereaved, people who were furloughed and perhaps forgotten, nothing else to do other than. In fact, I worked for an organisation during the pandemic who actually asked me to do some webinars for their staff because they were worried that those that were furloughed um, would in fact find unhealthy coping strategies. And so they actually asked me to do some podcasts and webinar that specifically addressed not choosing unhealthy coping strategies because they were so worried that they were going to end up with a workforce that came back with um, alcohol and drug problems. Well, good for them for having the insight, Mm. I would say. Yeah. What can companies do to uh, these people? They come back to work and they do have issues. How are they going to help them? And I think the good thing is lots of organisations now, um, certainly the better employers, have started to invest in employee assistance programmes, EAPs, which they hopefully signpost people to. So they don't just provide... They don't just provide help emotionally, psychologically. They also provide practical help. But having the courage to have the conversation with the person in the first place about your concern, um, that needs to happen. Yeah, because once you can direct people to an EAP, from what I remember anyway, at least they can then have a confidential conversation with someone unrelated to the workplace and they can talk to them about their drink issues and then they can get sent to AA, for example, or or somewhere else. The problem with it being a drink issue is people then fear that they're going to lose their job. So there's actually a greater need to hide that particular issue, especially if you work in an industry where it has zero tolerance. 
current. And mm. lots of my clients are in manufacturing, construction, that sort of thing, where they do have yeah. a policy that basically says, you know, it's gross misconduct, you could be facing a dismissal. And so sometimes people will work desperately hard to hide that because of fear yeah. of losing yeah. their job. Um and again, you know, I, I don't know whether it's because I'm lucky, but I know that some of my clients have a very positive, supportive approach that if somebody goes to them and says, I have a problem and I'd like to get help, the company will actually support mm. them. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure most companies would, but it's it's just those people that are hiding it because they yeah. know what the misconduct you know, mm. policy is and they're, they're worried about getting fired. Mm. I think companies, and I think they are slowly moving towards that way, they just need more wellness seminars, don't they? I mean, rather than <laughs> having a seminar called How to Cope with Your Drinking Problem, you know, let's make it general and look at drugs and alcohol. And and even for, you know, children as well at school, there's just so much, such a need for education. Because mm. I run workshops which, you know, we go through all the things that alcohol does to you. I've got all these gory slides, you know, that uh, frighten nice. people to death. But I really <laughs> go for it, you know, linked seven different types of cancer, 60 diseases and lots of horrible pictures. And, and people are genuinely horrified and shocked they have no idea you know mm. how bad it was and I've yeah. had breast cancer and I'm sure that was related to my my mm. drinking so mm. um it's definitely has a, a nasty impact on our our lives every Saturday afternoon we open up our tribe sober zoom cafe it's a safe space where our members can connect check in and just shoot the breeze about alcohol free living if you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at tribesober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. Yeah, the, um, I don't know if you're aware, but here in South Africa, we've had four alcohol bans, you know, complete alcohol mm. bans. You couldn't buy alcohol anywhere. And they did that because the hospitals uh, were full and struggling here. And every time they banned alcohol, gender-based violence plummeted, murders plummeted, car crashes plummeted, stabbings, murders plummeted. And there was space suddenly in hospital for the COVID patients. Mm. And it's it always makes me think that that's been like a massive social experiment, you know, that you mm. couldn't actually do if there wasn't yeah. something dramatic like the pandemic going on. But that's been a mm. very stark illustration of the harm that alcohol does, not only to individuals, but to society. Yeah. So, yeah, alcohol no, has been very interesting. I think they'd have struggled with that in the UK, Janet. I think there would have been riots <laughs> in the street. You know, people are even <laughs> objecting to wearing a mask in a supermarket. So being told that they couldn't buy beer. Um, I actually saw during the pandemic, I actually saw somebody attacking a cashier in a supermarket because they weren't allowed to buy two packs of um, family crisps. Because for a point in the UK, we've got limits on availability of groceries. And so imagine if you told them they couldn't have any yes. beer. Dear Absolutely. Lord, it would have been fisticuffs. <laughs> no, there, there wasn't any of that here, to my knowledge. But what they did is everything went underground. You know, you could mm. still find it. It would just cost you more. And people made provisions because... 
the, the research is showing us that here in South Africa, people that didn't drink much anyway during the ban, they just didn't drink. And after the ban, they haven't really gone back to previous mm-hmm. levels. But people that did have a problem, they made sure beforehand that they had a big stock. And then here, it hasn't been that certain when the ban is coming back. Is it coming back? So people have been buying more booze than ever, mm-hmm. just so that they've <laughs> always got a stock now. And then that, that, if you've got a stock, you tend to drink it. So that, that, that just makes me laugh. Over here, we all stockpiled toilet rolls. What does that tell you? You couldn't get toilet <laughs> rolls for love nor money. Um, and actually, thinking yeah. about it, I think in the UK we have quite we have a very different culture around drinking. Um, you know, certainly the hospitality industry here has been one of the hardest hit with the whole COVID thing. And, you know, there were government initiatives encouraging us to eat out, to help out, um, you know, to help pubs and, and restaurants and the like get back on their feet, which on the one hand, you go, yeah, OK, I can see that, support the economy. Um, but on the other hand, it's, again, driving that culture that, you know, this is this is how life is. Yeah. And the number of news items where we've seen when the pubs did reopen and when nightclubs reopened, people were queuing, queuing yeah. around the block to get yeah. into a pub. And we just live in a very strange country. Yeah, I remember when I used to go to the supermarket every Saturday and we'd have a trolley and we'd have our food and then we'd have, you know, a couple of cases of wine to to just get us through the week and maybe a bottle of Jack Daniels. And it's all, you know, cheapish. Whereas I was thinking back to my parents, you know, and when neither of them were drinkers really, but they... um, if they had a bottle of wine, it would be a treat, you know, it'd be somebody's birthday or somebody was coming round. But this kind of daily drinking and mm-hmm. having everything in the supermarket with your food and mm-hmm. it all being very affordable, that's mm-hmm. that's encouraged so many people to drink every day. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I don't know if you're aware what the uh, low risk limits are. I mean, we use the British ones here because mm-hmm. they don't even have any here, which <laughs> is okay. a bit of an indication. But it's supposed to be a bottle and a half of, of wine a week is your your lot, really, if you want to drink safely. And as I was drinking that a night, so mm. <laughs> it yeah. was time for a change. But people are, are amazed when they learn that. And I think it's six beers a week. Mm. No. <laughs> Imagine telling the guys in the English pub on a Friday night, oh, you can only have six beers a week. Yeah, a week, <laughs> a week. We had trouble enough, um, you know, even having people in pubs because there was talk of you could only stay for a certain period of time. Oh, my God, how do I get all that beer down my neck in a restricted time we, we've just got such different views and different social you know kind of settings we we've both experienced life in France where you know wine is just part and parcel of of you know everyday behavior we certainly don't have the they don't have the pub culture that we have here where people just go out to drink they go out to get hammered you know I don't think they've even got a word for getting hammered. <laughs> <laughs> You know my husband a bit and, you know, he'll have the odd glass of wine now and then. But, uh, you know, when he used to to watch me demolishing a bottle, he'd be quite puzzled to begin mm-hmm. with. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, he started saying, it's not good. Interesting. But it was only when I tried to cut down 
uh, that I realized that I had a problem because I couldn't. Mm. I thought, well, mm. you know, I probably am drinking too much, so let me stop, you know, and I'll just drink a few glasses a week. And I, I just couldn't do it. I mean, I could manage for a few weeks and then the wheels would come off mm. because I was completely hooked. Yeah. And then I was I was trying to use willpower. But as I understand now that I understand this field better, you have to change your whole mindset around drinking. You have to stop thinking that it's adding something to your life mm. because it's not. And it's only then when you stop seeing it as something essential that you can can just you know stop thinking about it and you just don't want it anymore well we'll talk about uh, your podcast and your work in a moment but anything else you think we should talk about that we haven't touched on that might help people worrying about alcohol and mental health I, I think I mean you you said it yourself Janet just how many um physical impact how much physical impact alcohol can have and we know that when it comes to good brain health um, we know that it absolutely depletes of essential fatty acids which actually there's been some work that's demonstrated the impact that those EFAs can have on depression so again if you're already struggling you're making matters worse by stripping your brain of the stuff that it needs to you know to actually get better we know that neurotransmitters are affected when we drink um, we know that, obviously, as, as we've suggested already, alcohol can lead people to making bad choices. And if we recognise that, and especially in younger people, um, 20% of suicides in young people in the UK are alcohol fueled. So for me, if you're in a situation where your mental health isn't great and you see drink as a way of dealing with that, I guess what I'd be suggesting to you is you're probably making matters worse, even though it might feel better to have that first glass or two. We know in the long run that, you know, and the worst place to be is to end up with a dual diagnosis. You know, if in the UK you are diagnosed with mental health disorder and you are known to um, misuse alcohol or drugs, that dual diagnosis label can be very challenging. Because the mental health services aren't set up to deal with your alcohol. The alcohol support services are not set up to deal with your mental health. And I've heard so many horror stories of people falling between the gaps because of that dual diagnosis that they, you know, they really struggle to get the help with either of those situations. And the two things combined, you know, just makes the whole situation so much more difficult to deal with. Yeah, well, I always say to people that uh, the most important and the most difficult thing to do in this whole journey is to, first of all, accept that you do have a problem with alcohol and secondly, to reach out and get some help. So, you know, if anyone's been listening to this and they are worried, then just reach out for help. You know, there's the joy of um, modern life is that there's so many different ways to get sober because it used to be, well, you trot down to AA, you know, if you have a drink problem. But AA isn't for everybody. I mean, I know I've been there. It wasn't for me, but it is, it's fine. For, it's helped many, millions of people. But there's so many other ways to get um, sober online these days mm -hmm. and you, you can even do it anonymously I mean when people join Tribe Sober there's a way of them being a member and going into the website and the, their name doesn't even appear but usually once they get to know people a bit and more comfortable then they, they want to share who they are mm -hmm. 
but there's I would say just just reach out if you are worried about your drinking and you know maybe you're fine but just try and do a challenge take a break do a a one month off alcohol and if you just breeze through it then you're probably fine but if you can't do it or even contemplate doing a month without alcohol then then get some help I, I do think things are changing though Janet because there's a couple of people that I follow on Twitter who um, every day announce 300 days today sober, you know? So I I do think there's a much bigger movement around being proud of that and, you know, getting support. Because I know those people, certainly the ones that I follow on Twitter, they get a lot of support socially from people who are encouraging them. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right to say it's like with most things, isn't it? It's like me, even with my mental health, admitting that I had a problem in the yeah. first place was the biggest step. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, then getting help is is, is, a, is a damn sight easier than admitting it to yourself in the first place. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I agree. I think there's a societal shift towards sobriety. And uh, when when I was first newly sober, I felt very embarrassed and apologetic and I'd mm-hmm. hide in corners with my alcohol-free drink, hoping no one would ask me what I was drinking as if they'd be interested. But, you know, it's all in your head. You feel so self-conscious. But now I'm in my seventh year of sobriety and I'm very proud of it. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. probably the best thing I, I did in my whole life. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your your work. So how can people get in touch with you and what's your podcast called? So take us through that, please. Um, If people want to get in touch, the easiest way is probably through the website, which is confidentconversations.co.uk. And there you will also find a link to the podcast that's called Really Useful Conversations. And what I'm trying to do with the podcast is to encourage people to have conversations that matter whether those conversations are indeed about alcohol, whether they are about mental health. Next month, I'm interviewing a guest to talk about the menopause, you know, all the things that we simply don't talk about that actually bubble away under the surface and cause all sorts of problems. And it's the silence that sits around them that actually contributes to the issue. Because all the time it's not okay to talk about it. I'm not going to reach out. I'm not going to acknowledge. I'm not going to admit. I'm not going to get help. And so the Really Useful Conversations podcast is intended to give people um, advice and learning to help people develop the confidence so that as a society, we can better address the stuff that does matter. Thank you, Andrea. That was so interesting. Let's try and pick out a few highlights from that conversation. I found Andrea's account of how alcohol made her feel suicidal as rather chilling. The fact that she actually had a concrete plan to end her life. And her point that alcohol can provide the Dutch courage to actually go through with it. These days, Andrea works for the National Centre for Suicide Prevention in the UK. She delivers a workshop that helps people to have crucial and difficult conversations, conversations which can save lives. She explained to us that the risk of suicide is eight times higher if alcohol is involved and that 20% of suicides in young people in the UK are alcohol fueled. On a lighter note, we discussed the work hard, play hard culture that pervades in so many corporates. 
and the fact that you are sometimes perceived as boring if you don't go along for the weekly drinks with your colleagues. Sobriety can even have career implications as well. When I was in my 20s, I worked for the BBC, and I can still remember being given a nudge by my helpful boss to go to the BBC club more often, as it was so valuable for networking. So I did, and it was there that I discovered that drinking was actually the really essential part of networking. I mentioned one of my favourite books, Quiet by Susan Cain. It's all about introverts and extroverts. Society is roughly split 50-50 between the two, and introverts often use alcohol as a coping mechanism to help them manage pressure of networking, entertaining clients, and of course, socializing. So if you are an introvert, then please read this book. It'll be very good for your self-esteem. After all, we do live in a society that often seems to favor extroverts. We also talked about the difficulty of socializing in early sobriety and how it's actually the drunk people rather than the sober ones who are boring. I shared a tip from our Tribe Sober Toolkit that it helps to be an anthropologist. When you go out and everybody seems to be drinking except you, just observe observe how the voices change, observe how people start repeating themselves. And without judging, just be curious and have a look at the effect that alcohol has on people. We talked about the pandemic and the fact that working from home may have encouraged more people to rely on alcohol. And the fact that managers may have to deal with this issue when employees return to work. That led us to discussing Andrea's consulting work, which is based around seven conversations. Difficult conversations that many managers will struggle with. Andrea helps them to structure these conversations and offers them some very valuable training. It struck me that these difficult conversations are, of course, something that many of us have to have in our personal lives as well the kind of conversation we may need to have with a family member who is drinking too much. I'm planning on asking Andrea to write a guest blog for our website on this subject. So do have a listen to Andrea's podcast as there is so much helpful advice in there. Advice about how to have difficult conversations in our work and our personal lives. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're really feeling low or you know someone who is suicidal, then please contact Andrea via LinkedIn or you can email me on janet at tribesober.com and we'll connect you to someone who can help. I'm introducing a new section to the end of the podcast this week. I'm just going to open my phone and go to the first member WhatsApp message that inspires me. We've got plenty of sober cheerleaders on our groups, people who've got sober with us and then stuck around because they enjoy the community and they want to help others. It's sometimes quite hard to get the balance right on the WhatsApp groups. When people continually fall off the sober bus, we want to be gentle and encouraging, but sometimes just a touch of tough love is needed. So I found this message from sober cheerleader Lucy 
or bad cop Lucy, as we sometimes call her when she posts these kind of messages. So to put it in context, one of our members who's been doing quite well was tempted to hop off the wagon and go on a bender. So Lucy's message. What on earth do you think a bender will do for you? What will it help? How will it make you feel? Do you like the drunk version of you? Do you like having a two-day hangover? What are you trying to escape from? How will drinking make it better? Now get back on the bus and stop making flipping excuses. She didn't actually say flipping, but I didn't want to get the podcast blocked, so she'll forgive me for making that little tweak. And yes, sometimes we need to use tough love. So thank you for being our bad cop Lucy. We appreciate you. If you'd like to hear Lucy's inspiring story of how she kicked the booze, then it's on episode seven of our Tribe Sober podcast. And if you think you might need a bit of tough love to get you started on this life-changing journey, then why not join our tribe? Just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening and don't forget to follow us and share the podcast and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.